Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to The Double Digits. That's right. Breaking the Mold has hit 10 episodes. I am still Evan Roth, having been your host now for all 10 of these episodes, and sitting right in front of me, brother Dan Roth, guest co-host. Dan, welcome. Welcome to number 10. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Uh, It is great. It's an honor to be here on your 10th anniversary. Thank you, Dan. Dan, you know, we're a business podcast. Uh, we work off of numbers. Uh, so what comes to mind when you think of 10? What's the first thing? Uh, I think of two hands. Oh. Mm-hmm. And, and wait, can I see two yeah, times five? Do you have a calculator? <laughs> I'm just doing the, I'm doing the math here. Let me finish counting. Carry Ten. over the one. <laughs> you don't think of, uh, I go to Bo Derek. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you're significantly older than I am. Yeah. So I... Uh, and, and taller and more handsome and can attract <laughs> Bo Derek. Right. I was at a, a Halloween party last weekend. There was a monster mashup Halloween party. Yeah. You could only show up if you combined two different uh, ideas into one outfit. Oh. And two people showed up as uh, as Bo Derek Jeter. Bo Ooh. Derek uh, braids with a full Derek Jeter outfit on. I love so that. Go. Yeah, it was pretty good. You could do it. You could pull it off. I, I, I could, both in terms of, I think, my raw baseball skills, That's along right. with my, my my long, beautiful, blonde, flowing hair in a bikini. Yeah, I mean, I, you probably get this a lot anyways. Yeah. Even non-Halloween, so. I, it's, it's actually what I wore to work today. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, we are here, and uh, because Double Digits is a fresh start here, we, we are going to do something a little different. And, and podcast listeners out there, uh, I know that you, you come to Breaking the Mold uh, expecting to hear guests. Today, those guests are going to be your two co-hosts right here. We are going to go guest list today, Breaking the Mold, Breaking the Mold. Whoa. Yes. Oh, so yes. meta. Yeah, yeah, go with it. I like it. Thanks. I think that uh, you think about what the future is, and it's a lot about uh, you have to be your own your own the, the the entrepreneur of your of yourself you can't rely on other people yeah 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 here we are no guess we know it, it's just we're flying solo we're building the plane yeah as it's off the cliff yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it really is a perfect metaphor the the idea of the, the the plane off the cliff as we're building it yes did you bring your tools have you not this is a, a very this is a very silicon valley saying that's the yes. idea that as an entrepreneur is you're i think it's you're building the hang glider you're building the plane yeah. You jump and then you build it in the air. Anyways, that's what we're doing okay. in real we time. <laughs> we're here. We we are uh, we're going to try to hopefully live through this episode. Unlike if we were trying to build our own hang glide, uh, or anybody in Silicon Valley was trying to actually build a hang glider. Um, and the way we're going to uh, to do that, Dan, is we're going to take the uh, playbook of uh, other podcasts and we're going to break this into three themes, three segments. First is going to be something that we talk about topically, something that's in the news, what's happening this week, um, and we'll spend a little bit of time kind of breaking that down. 
second theme is going to be something that's more on my turf, something investment, market, economy related, something that you can really make money doing uh, to contrast it with what you do, Dan, which is is, is a lot of talk without a lot of dollars Big and ideas. sense behind it. Yeah. Big ideas is what I trade in Concept every, every day. <laughs> Third segment, we'll go into the big idea phase. You're going to take something away from there that's going to enrich your soul. Boring. <laughs> Can I just point out, we got a, a tweet the other day from someone saying that they had run, by the, that, that, that breaking the mold was the soundtrack of their run. And I think that's a, a good goal for us as we think about, now that we're in the double digits, yeah. as, we go through, <laughs> as we go through these, can we keep people... Can we power people through a marathon? Can we get someone? What is it? It's, there's a half hour long. Yeah. So you can run a marathon in, in a half hour. In a half hour, right? Yeah, you definitely could if you I took could, like, the A train. I could do, I could run almost a mile in a half hour. Well, yeah. I mean, you, with, you know, I mean, maybe if you were somebody was pushing you That's and right. you were in a wheelchair, um, you could do it. Now, I, I do think I, that, that we, were, we were kind of talking before why, why listen to us while running? And I think that there's something so invigorating about our conversation that I think it just it, it leads to adrenaline rush and, and speed. Yeah, world records, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. All, All right. right. Uh, for the marathon coming up on Sunday, this these are your hosts, and you're going to be seeing the uh, Kenyan leader listening to us on breaking the mold in order to be able to finish. <laughs> Dan, topic number one, topical news. In addition to the uh, your Halloween uh, costume, which uh, did seem a little strange that you were doing this a week before actually Halloween, but yep. I don't know who am I to say that's what they do in Brooklyn, um, is that Halloween pop-up stores. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you need to be in New York, you don't need to be in L.A. or San Francisco to have appreciated in the last five years the amazing amount of uh, stores that seemingly come out of the ether that are focused on getting you dressed for Halloween. Okay, let's think about, first of all, Halloween's a big business in New York, eight bill, in New York, in the U.S., $8 billion business. Three billion of the eight billion is just on costumes, mostly Bo Derek Jeter costumes. Um, it has had double-digit growth um, in the last five years. This year, they're expecting it to be another 13% growth. So why not use pop-up stores as a way to target your market and be able to, to, to sell costumes at point of sale, not having to rely on e-commerce, that you can just go out there and you know, show up at your local strip mall, local, local block, and you'll see a pop-up store that will only have existed for the last two months. Now, the reason that these have come up just in the last several years, Dan, is because of the uh, Great Recession. 2008, back when uh, uh, you were a youngster, mm-hmm. uh, 2008, the scenario in strip malls was not pretty. Uh, in uh, big malls was not pretty. Lots of landlords leaving, or lots of tenants leaving overnight. Landlords left with a lot of extra, um, a lot of extra room, and they turned to the idea that pop-up stores, places that could they'd rent to for three months, is better than leaving it vacant. And uh, and what's happened is that uh, as the shopping experience has changed, not just about Halloween, but generally for people, they have yet to kind of go back to malls. And so the amount of kind of usable square footage in malls has stayed the same over the last five years. But as the economy has recovered, you actually have now started to see some mall operators being able to start selling to permanent tenants as opposed to those that are, are, are these pop-up stores. So the question is, 
is it already five years in? You kind of rely on that, that the Ricky's down the street's going to be there to be able to supply you with all of your last second costume needs? Or will the market change again and you're going to be able to get your costumes in other places? <clears throat> Two thoughts about that. Number one is I think that we saw this play out. It's interesting that it's just now playing out in the in the uh, physical world when it played out in the uh, online earlier than this. And if you saw what happened with Guilt and with what happened with some of these other flash uh, sale places, where they no longer had the inventory. They had tons of inventory. They had all the stuff they could sell very cheaply right after the recession because manufacturers had to get rid of supplies. Mm -hmm. That dried up as the economy started turning around and as manufacturers got smarter about producing uh, just-in-time uh, um, couches and clothing or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and so now it's much harder to do the flash sale. So same thing now happening with, hmm. with, uh, with, with landlords not being able, they can now actually rent out their full space. They don't have to just do it in these three-month periods. Right. So you see that market opportunity suddenly dry up. But I think it all moves all online, to answer your question. It moves all online. Yeah. See, like, I, I think if you think about just retail in general, I, I don't understand why malls exist. Completely, this is a New York bias. Um, and I have a client who um, owns the largest outdoor mall in Seattle. And I've encouraged him to look at other investment opportunities, thinking that that is one that will likely peter out. And he could not disagree with me more. And certainly the success of that mall would quickly prove me wrong. But he says that it's the, the tenants are not, it's not Macy's. It's not these kind of be all for all things like just come to my mall and hopefully like you know you find something you need it's very targeted and so it's online e-commerce retailers who are going to bricks and mortar who never who didn't start that way but they're going in return and the idea is that it's it's basically is just a showroom right right there's actually very little inventory that's there but the showroom is set up in a place that they know based off of the metrics of who's buying their product online, that they know that they all live within a 10 or 50 mile radius of this area in Seattle. They're all going to come out. They're going to be able to touch and feel what they can't do online. And they turn right back around and either they buy it online or they buy it through the sales clerk who's there. But the experience, people are going to, people love the experience of shopping. That's why I'm not sure these pop-up stores will, you know, looking at it online and watching like a video of somebody wearing, you know, an Aaron, Aaron Rodgers jersey, that's just not the same as actually being able to go there with your kid, try it on, see what it looks like, and then and then move away. I don't you know, know that goes away. I totally disagree. And I think that for this, number one, it's what you're, if you move into the showrooming world, that means that, that it, it becomes a marketing expense. It's very easy, I think, that if you're a big company and you're trying to figure out or you're a small business and you're trying to figure out whether it's worth getting a storefront, yeah. you can say, here are my projected sales and here are my real estate costs. Now, if it's just marketing, it's because that's all it is. Showrooming yeah. is just yeah, yeah. could go. you go and you feel it. You might as well buy an ad or shoot a video for it. It's a very expensive way to do marketing. Maybe it works for some places. I don't think it'll be enough to sustain the entire mall infrastructure that exists here. On the other hand, it's still my favorite place to exercise. <laughs> I could just walk around any mall for yeah. like days on end. That's so funny. Your favorite place actually it's my favorite place to segue. <laughs> you segue right next to me and and we can we could do the next podcast. Uh, uh segue and and uh, mall walking. Speaking of segue, we are going to move on. Segue from Well played. God, so good. So good. Episode 2 you couldn't have pulled that off. No way. No. It's experience, Dan. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. 
Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. Dan, segment number two. Segment number two is on my turf. We're talking financials, dollars, cents. We're going to dive into community banks. Bank brokers who are there to sell you investment products. These community banks are really just your good old-fashioned local banks. They used to be the ones that would get equity owners based off of having people who would open up checkbooks and or checking accounts. And with that checking account, they got you know a one percent ownership or a 0.01 percent ownership in the bank itself. And and they also get two lollipops, and they'd feel like they were an owner in, sure. in kind of the a local institution. And they've, they've community banks have have become. Um, in a environment like we're in right now, where it's just very difficult for banks to make money in general, whether you're a big or a small bank, community banks are struggling. Um, there are 6,000 community banks that have less than a billion dollars in assets. And that means it's a very fragmented industry. You can think about what your one local bank is, and it's the one that's kind of on the street corner, but you're not going to see a series of branches. And if you know you want to get money out, you got to go to that one place. It's just not as attractive as the, uh, the, the bank that's been a function of a lot of consolidation in the Wells Fargo and the Chases, which are on every block, and it's just very easy to do your banking services, even for those that still you know, prefer to do it, do it in person. So the other factor that's playing in community banks and why they are not particularly attractively priced right now is that um, they, the way that community banks historically have been able to unlock value is that they've been sold to a investor who's interested in doing a roll-up, essentially combining many of these banks together into one to create something that you know gets some real economies of scale. Um, in the past, the biggest investor in roll-ups has been private equity. And given the amount of cash that's gone into private equity in the last five or 10 years and the amount of, of major fundraises that these private equity firms have been able to, to, to generate, they have been largely excluded from private banks because they've been excluded from investing in community banks because of regulatory constraints. If you're private equity, you are actually not allowed to own a bank. You can't oh. have a control of bank. Interesting. Yeah. So that's great. So now you've got all these fragmented little banks out there. They're not making any money because interest rates are zero. Um, and so what the government has done is said, we're going to turn this around and we actually are going to require banks to consolidate that are less than a billion dollars. Now, how do they require that? They essentially create incentives for these banks to actually go out and actually make more money. And the way they do that is they loosen the um, the investment restrictions. They lose. They relax the risk requirements. This is a new rule. It's uh, two years old. The CFTC, which governs the small banking community, is really the one that's behind this move. And so it allows for these community banks to take on a lot more leverage. They're clearly not too big to fail. They're not a political risk for anybody. Um, and. That has now encouraged banks to go out, these community banks to actually go out. And what they've typically done is they've taken in deposits, they've turned those deposits around, they've invested mostly in commercial real estate because that, those are the opportunities that community banks have. And they now are being able to lower their cost of capital essentially by being able to have less money kept aside and earning zero on it and being able to put more into local investments. And so the question is, is this good you know for you know for um for the industry is this something the government should actually be having a hand in and um and why don't more people know about it yeah well there's not enough podcasts covering this clearly oh. so this is a um that's uh, all market uh the i think the one the one of the things that i uh 
the areas in this that, that I've read that's been pretty interesting is John Hope Bryant. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, mm. He really focuses on the role of um, of the what the, the role the poor play in capitalism. He has a book that's out right now. The role called of the what poor, of, poor of of bringing of the idea of 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 enabling. Of trying to of trying to make sure that there are services that the poor have that you can if you can, instead of just focusing on the one percent focus on the ninety percent okay and and um, and I don't know what happens eight percent in the middle but this is the uh, <laughs> this is his his focus on one one big area is on the idea of community banks and the role that the community banks can play but not just community banks his big his big push is that there needs to be well it's just it's it's microfinance. Domestically, except he's not focused just on the f- finance part. He thinks that these banks have a role to play in being in, in giving that lollipop to people, but doing more than that is of giving real advice. He talks about his father, who was a very small hmm. businessman, um, and the and ma- and a entrepreneur and trying to figure out things on the fly. And you need the bank. The bank in a lot of these communities, the banker might be the only person who has some kind of economic uh, expertise or the ability to give some kind of um, advice. That will help your small business. But the advice is not so it's it's not just providing capital. That's it's right. providing operational expertise exactly. to business owners who don't have any other source to be able and do you really think these little community banks are the ones who should be providing it? They're no one else's. I mean, I, his, I'm not sure that's better than no one. Really? Yeah. He he is um, he, he talks about the idea of making sure that there are people in these banks that uh-huh. can do it. He says there are um, hundred thousand branches right now. There are there are more check cashing places than there are Starbucks in America, huh. and there is no um, there's just no support for this community. There's they get absolutely no business expertise at all. So having the ability to use these community banks, they already have real estate. They're already there. These people. Yeah. W- what would make you think that they would not be able to provide any kind of insight that would be useful because i think the decision because i think giving business advice is fundamentally different than understanding how to allocate capital like to make a decision of who you know of of um how much inventory to take on how much whether you need to rent a space or not how to put financial statements together Mm -hmm. like I, i just think that because really what you're talking about is is if it's you know if the ones who he's in Encouraging, who don't already have this, these, you know, outlets for being able to get advice, is that they're gonna they're gonna need to walk into a local, exactly. you know, bank and be able to get that. Is that the bank has to start um, hiring for that expertise? Now, I actually think it's a kind of good marketing strategy for these businesses, right? right? That look, you, you need to protect your loan if you're gonna make it to this entrepreneur anyway, right? And they are entrepreneurs regardless of their socioeconomic status. These yep. are entrepreneurs who are out there to look for, you know, opportunities. Is you're going to lend it to them. The government's encouraging you to lend it to them because they're offering you attractive rates to do it. Okay, well, now how do you make sure that you protect it? Not exactly. Just, I don't want just people, but I just don't, I think that they need, that's not who the they're hiring have, right now. Got it. You think that there has to be, just having the branches alone isn't enough, that there has to actually be people who have the expertise to help provide this, just because you're a banker and you... And you know how to how to break a $100 bills, and you know how to ask how many 20s and 50s do you need. And you don't think at the community banks there are people that are, if they are investing in commercial real estate, if they're investing in other areas, they have some kind of business expertise to be able to pull, pull that off. They do, but they really, I mean, it's, I think maybe as this, 
as the loosening continues and mm-hmm. as really the opportunities for these community banks are outside of your local, you know, outside of real estate, maybe they will develop that expertise and, an, and a secondary benefit of that is that they might be able to make individual loans to start up businesses. But I don't think that's, that's not their, if I'm, if I'm trying to make a capital allocation decision and I'm looking at what is the cost of capital, what is the, what is the, the, um, expected return on capital from an entrepreneur who, who has little to no expertise and being able to not only repay me, but then be able, if I'm gonna take some equity, be able to make some real money off of it, versus one where it's land, I can hold, I can touch. They're never gonna give, they're never gonna make an allocation hmm. to these individual investors. So, so nice thought, you don't see it actually being a benefit. I, I, I like the idea, yeah. yeah. I like the idea, I like the concept. I think, and maybe we'll say this for a future podcast, if it's not community banks, it's a, it's a need, who should it be? And that will do it for Big Money segment number two. We'll be right back talking big ideas. Dan's going to launch us off for our last segment. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. Segment three. We're going to get into the big ideas, mm-hmm. as promised here. This is an area of focus that affects uh, a huge chunk of the economy that is not community banks. Mm-hmm. Talking about education. <laughs> no, this is the, the last part of the economy, um. higher education. Mm-hmm. Not just anything about higher education, but actually the um, breaking up of the old higher education idea. I want mm-hmm. to talk about a – I uh, <clears throat> did a talk about a week ago with the – Undersecretary of uh, of Education of the Department of Education, a guy named Ted Mitchell. Okay, a name to know, a name to remember, a name to remember. Okay, an undersecretary, by the way, is an underutilized title. I'd like to be an undersecretary. Dan, you can be undersecretary of breaking the mold. Guest undersecretary. I like that. All right. <laughs> um, and one of the things that the Department of Education has been doing in the, in the entire um, – during the Arne Duncan years mm-hmm. has been really to using a series of carrots and sticks to try to force higher education to undergo some radical changes. They've done a few things. One is they've really put pressure on the for-profit education. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they are and, – and they've also tried to put uh, pressure on regular higher education with the idea being that uh, tying all these together is the idea that – the what you do when you work is totally different than it used to be mm-hmm. and that getting a stamp from a university is no longer good enough that we can now measure whether you're actually learning and employers want to know whether you have certain skills and that is what higher education should be delivering and one of his big points was that we think about higher education think about who's going to school and you think oh this is his line was traditionally you think someone shows up in a minivan they get out and four years later they leave with a beard and he was like, but if you think about who's, who is in school now, it's a 31-year-old single mom who's right. returning to get education who needs certain skills. It's someone who it's their first – they'll be the first in their family who's ever gone to college. And It's the non-traditional students. Yes, and they are now – the non-traditional students are now the, are now the students. Uh-huh, just measured by numbers. By numbers, numbers exactly. This is education. the majority now. And that's because they've been lured in by – for-profit schools, there junior are, colleges. Yes, there are many more ways to get this education, and um, and and there's a lot more pressure to get to go through higher education at this point. How do they afford it? Well, this is one of the things that they uh, the, the government 
gives a lot of loans mm-hmm. for this. Um, and and what really struck me at this at this conversation was the the, the a couple weeks ago the the Department of Education released a new program that enables um, Pell grants and other financial funding to be used for course-based education. So if you go to, you ever heard of General Assembly, a place you can go learn how to code and learn different, mm. you can get, you learn one specific thing, mm-hmm. and you can take a course for 12 weeks and learn a skill. Online course? General Assembly happens to be a uh, a, a combination, but there are places okay. you go to, to learn it. But they don't, the Department of but Education doesn't care. The Department of Education, so it's a single That's right. subject yes. with pure intent to get a job from that. So the all idea it is, is, it's all, it is, it is pre-on-the-job training. It is pre on the job, or it could be on the job training. Or on the job, get a better, yeah, a better outcome for your current job. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally different way than we've thought about higher education yeah. before. If you think about the government being the main source that schools get their find, most schools get their financing through, somehow through the federal government, mm-hmm. whether it's loans to students and then the students can actually show up and pay for schools. Mm-hmm. This is a this is the way that you break apart the four year diploma factory. Hmm. And it now becomes something where you can just go and get the courses you need and show up for and show up and and be uh, ha- have enough that someone wants to employ you. You go to these programs and you actually say, as a we are going to encourage the university. Are these still four year bachelor degrees? Do they still have that equivalent, or really is a that still certificate exists. that comes for this one special? Subject? The Department of Education is saying that they don't think that one is better than the other. The Department of Education should be in the position of teaching all of a person, not just how to get a job. So I don't know where this fits in, and it certainly is an expensive way to, but what about like the humanities? What about learning about things that like actually fit for you in today's job market, but don't fit at six, six years from now as things change? And, and why is it that the government doesn't appreciate that there's a totality that right. they're kind of responsible for. You see what I'm saying? It's not Absolutely. just about edu- it's not just about getting a job. I asked the same question. First of all, they're not cutting funding for that. You can still go and go to school, and, and you can get loans and still attend a four year university. But they don't want to. They don't believe that's any necessarily better than going. If you're a 31 year old single mom that needs to get trained in a certain skill, why shouldn't the government help you get a loan to be able to learn that skill? And this and, and under Secretary Mitchell's point of view was. The whole person, educated the whole person, four years, you learn how that goes. It's, this is, that's in a, in a very expensive way to learn about yourself. It is, but that's not the, the government. That's not, that's not the government's job. That's where the private market, free market, should take care of that. Right? If you're looking to hire 10,000 coders, um, I, I, don't, I don't want to need the Department of Education providing that education. I want to, as you They're know, not my, providing my, the education. They're providing the, the loans that you go get. Yeah, that's the incentives. This is a... It is either the Department of Education. But why do they need loans? Why, why if I'm, if I'm, what, what's a, what's a big employer of engineers right now besides the Apple's and Amazon's? Well, let's do uh, GE. GE, big, big employer. Okay, so GE comes and says, okay, I'm actually, it's GE's interesting. They're actually getting out of the financial services business right, to just right. focus on the manufacturing side. So, GE says, okay, I need to be in Cincinnati and I need to hire uh, three thousand people to help build my engines. You know, my airplane engines. Right. Okay, they aren't going to decide to then, you know, the way that they want to train them is how to build it GE's way, right? They don't need to have some affiliation with the Department of Education who's teaching it in one special way that might not be applicable to actually these people coming in and being on-ramped into the, into the in, you know, in, into the 
into the corporation. Uh, well, let's say you're in Arizona, you live in Arizona, you know that this is, you actually care about airplane engines, you care about engineering, you know you want to get some kind of a job. Either you, your choice is right now, but you, you have no way to pay for school on your own. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily want, you're 32 years old, you have to start getting, you can't afford to spend four years learning something just so you can get a diploma. Why shouldn't you be able to get a loan from the government to learn a skill, to be able to get that job in Cincinnati and then pay back the government at a you know reasonable rate? Yeah, I, I think that's short-term thinking. Huh. I think it's short-term thinking, and I think that GE takes care of you in ways that the government isn't capable about being able to incentivize you to be I able think, to get that education. I think this is the this is a massive future of higher education. I think by the time our kids are graduating, the diploma will have lost a lot of its luster as being the way the thing that you look for when you're hiring. It mm-hmm. will be a thing that you look for, but you also look for people who have proven skills that they've gotten through coursework or through universities that understand this and are and are and are um can, can give a stamp of approval for different parts of that job. Okay. I, I think this is an underestimation of the value of a four-year degree. I hear you that we shouldn't be thinking about the population as a whole. It should be these non-traditional, you know, um, learners or, nine, or, or later stage going back to get an education or first in their family. Um, and I, I agree that at some point it becomes so price prohibitive to be able to go to an independent, private, or even a public school that you need alternatives. And whether those alternatives are junior colleges, which of course our mom would advocate for, or whether they're opportunities to do in the right way in a for-profit college. Interesting, I actually just toured a for-profit college in the Bronx yesterday, and watching these kids learn and the way that they were engaged in the conversation and realizing that you looked around, these are not the kind of kids that were coming from the president of the university saying they're not coming, they're coming from broken homes. This mm-hmm. was the, this is their opportunity to get something that does allow them to differentiate themselves from what job they could get if it was just a high school degree. So I get the I- idea behind I go even it. further too. Online courses I think are a legitimate thing, whether it's Linda, uh, which just to be totally clear, LinkedIn purchased it uh-huh, earlier in the uh-huh, year, whether, it's, <laughs> whether it is any of the other many MOOCs that you might go to get to take a certain course to learn yeah. something, I think that's part of this future as well. So I, I, I think, think each of these chips away at the four-year degree. I, I just hope it doesn't come back to hurt us in one of two ways. Either A, it actually doesn't lead to the job that they hope for, or B, we're not appropriately appreciating how dynamic our economy is and we're teaching people skills that are only germane over a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So that is it for our new Breaking the Mold uh, format episode number 10. Let us know what you think. Yeah. And, and um, the, uh, hopefully our Kenyan is done running. Um, and if so, I hope you won the, uh, the marathon. Congratulations. I think that we have to assume that. That's true. You I don't know, did. Yeah. I don't know why I'm saying it. That's right. Yeah. It's happened. Congratulations. Well, mazel tov. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Molds. Don't forget to email us at btmshow at icloud.com or follow us on Twitter at Roth Evan or at Dan Roth. <laughs>